This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Tēnā koe ko Murdoch tēnei, te kai whakarite pāpāho Māori ki tuia ngā reo o te hāpuri. Tēnā koe, it's Murdoch, Māori Media Coordinator here at Free FM. And we're really excited about all the new Māori-focused content currently playing on Free FM. But we can always do more. So if you have kōrero, you want to share with us i roto i te reo Māori in the Māori language or with a Māori kaupapa, then email me, maorimedia at freefm.org.nz. Tūtawa mai i runga, tūtawa mai i raro, tūtawa mai i roto, tūtawa mai i waho, kia mauri tū, kia mauri ora, kia tātou katoa, me tuku mihi anō, kia koutou katoa. Claudette Hauti here, Y262, kia whakapūmau, this is the first whānau claimant, the taumata whakapūmau le kōrero, the history of Y262 flora and fauna claim, this symposium here at Waipapa Marae at Te Wharewānanga or Tamaki Makaurau Auckland University. The symposium serves an opportunity to share kōrero, uh, kaupapa, vision, moi moi a legacy of the original claimants, the Ōhaki. It's also here, we are also here to share the Wai 262 journey ahead of us all, kia mua, kia muri, because as we know, it has been a very, very long journey. The journey is not over. And so we continue to enforce and to reclaim what we originally had wanted in Te Ōhaki, the joint dreams and aspirations of Te Ōhaki. We're also here uh, to give you, uh, we have for you technicians, practitioners, mātauranga, tikanga, Māori experts, Māori scientists, universities, university academics, museum legal professionals and researchers have all assembled here today to give you their perspective on how best to proceed with the Y262 under the current environmental and political uh, context. We understand that the world, not just Aotearoa, New Zealand, but the world is battling climate change. What does that mean for us, tangata whenua, mana whenua, mana moana, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and how best for our Indigenous voices, Māori voices, to be able to direct and to guide the uh, strategy to work with government and the Crown on how to minimise climate change on our whenua and our moana. Very, very important. Our mātauranga is front and centre of any of the strategies going forward put forward by our government and the Crown. We're here also to support and work with Te Taumata Whakapumo and the legacy projects of Y262 and we will talk more about that and we will talk to others as well too, Māngai who have, who will be coming today to submit to this, the first whānau claimant, Taumata Whakapumo here. It's an online symposium here at Waipapa Marae. University of Auckland, Te Whariwānanga o Tamaki Mikaurau. Tēnā nō ko te kato o tira tātou, ko waihape mai anō ki tātou hui tēnei wā ki roto i a tāne nui a rangi e tūnei. 
And to those of you who are on our live stream on Itirangiwate at 6.03 a.m. or uh, registered online here on www.slido.com, it's awesome to have you with us again at our symposium, Y262, Kia Whakapumo, Kia Puro, Te Moko, o Te Tono Ikea Niko Y262. The first Fano claimant, Taumata Whakapumo, led Kordero, and the history of Y262 flora and fauna claim. And the symposium serves as an opportunity to share the Kordero vision and legacy of the original claimants, share the Y262 journey ahead of us all, and have, uh, as technicians and practitioners, Mātauranga Tikanga Māori experts, Māori scientists, universities, academics, museums, legal professionals, and researchers support and work with. Te Taumata Whakapumo and the legacy projects of Y262. Te Taumata Whakapumo includes whānau claimants and their iwi leaders from Ngāti Kuri, Te Rarawa, Ngāti Wai, Ngāti Porau, Ngāti Kahungunu and Ngāti Kuata. And don't forget this is um, the kickoff really for our kanohi order engagement. Uh, the Y262 six claimant whānau and iwi are beginning kanohi ora engagement hui to gather the views of Māori and to gain support for the ongoing work of Te Taumata uh, Let's now turn to our next speaker, uh, talking to the title, Y262 and Legal Instruments, what could this mean for Māori? She is currently a DPhil in law candidate at Mansfield College. I think that's Oxford, eh? Mansfield College. Her research focuses on intellectual property and Indigenous people's traditional knowledge. Prior to her time at Oxford, she worked at the World Intellectual Property Organisation and as a commercial litigator at one of New Zealand's leading law firms. She holds an LLM from Harvard University, where she studied as a Fulbright Scholar, and a BAL or Beyond's conjoint degree from this esteemed institution, the University of Auckland, Te Wānanga o Tāmaki Makoto. Let's introduce you now to our next speaker, to the topic again, Y262 and legal instruments. What could this mean for Māori? Please welcome Kiri Toki. Uh, kia ora, tēnā tātou. Hopefully, I'm sharing my screen now. Uh, Hopefully that's working. Um, until I'm told I'm not, I'm just going to proceed, I think. Uh, so thank you, Julian, for that um, lovely introduction. Tēnā tātou, ko Hiriki Mata Te Maunga, ko Te Wana Nui Atoi Te Moana, ko Aotea Te Mautiri Rongonui, ko Kiri Tōki Tōku Ingoa, hi uri ahau no Ngāti Wai, no Ngāti So... My name is Kitty, uh, and it's a real honour to be asked to uh, to speak today. Um, I will talk uh, very briefly about my personal connection uh, to the Y263 report, but this is a very heartfelt copa, but not just to me, but to my whānau, and it's one that's followed me uh, from my youth all the way through to, to where I am today and in my professional career. Um, so it's... Uh, with a deep uh, and heartfelt thank you to uh, the uh, Taumata Whakapumo for asking me to speak today and for organising the symposium. Um, I would like to acknowledge the mahi that the 
the original claimants uh, put into this claim all the way uh, back in the 80s, the filing of the claim, as well as the mahi that's been done at the moment. Um, I know that carrying the legacy of such an important kaupapa comes with, uh, it's, it's not it's a burden, but it comes with a huge responsibility. And so I particularly would like to acknowledge the mahi of my auntie Thelma um, and the whānau of the claimants uh, because the legacy that they started is, is one that's uh, that still exists today and that needs to be seen through. Um, I would also like to thank uh, Kay Marie and Ariane and the behind the scenes team. Hopefully this is working. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm going to uh, double check to make sure it's all working okay. Yes, I think it's working okay. Um, for those of you who can't tell or for those of you who don't know, I actually live on the sea. Um, I've come back to Aotearoa in the midst of the whole COVID thing um, and I live on a boat. Uh, so sometimes it's difficult to get to the mainland when you when Mother Nature and, and Tawhiri and Tangaroa sort of say that you're not meant to go to Tamaki. So thank you, Cameron and who have helped me a lot to be able to present my kōrero today um, from my kāinga waka, from, uh, from the ocean uh, to you. So if there are any connectivity issues, it's probably to do uh, with trying to speak from the sea um, rather than with them. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge and um, I'd also like to acknowledge the other speakers. Uh, there are, I have no words to uh, convey the respect that I have for the other speakers in the symposium. They are leaders uh, and I have followed their work uh, ever since I sort of could read really. Um, and their work to this day not only inspires me to think beyond and critically and to decolonize my own thinking when it comes to such important kaupapa like this mahi, the Y262, but I can t I reread their work and it's I, I shouldn't be surprised, but they what was written all those years ago um, from in the 80s all the way back to the 1850s even um, by our ancestors. It's remarkable how true and how accurate and how correct and how unwavering those truths are and the the courage it takes to write those. So it's a genuine privilege to be speaking among such illustrious leaders uh, today. So I've been asked to talk about the Y262 and, and legal instruments. Um, and I'm a lawyer by train training, but um, I didn't want to, the, the concept of a legal instrument and the technicalities that come with legal instruments make lawyers very excited. Um, but that's quite a technical conversation. and. Behind the technical conversation, I think there are some key fundamentals that we as a people need to think through before we start even asking those technical questions. Um, and it's beginning with those more fundamental kaupapa that I would like to um, perhaps introduce um, some ideas into that kōrero. Uh, and so I thought perhaps some interesting uh, experience or, or some, some sort of like uh, some insights that I could share and sort of add to that kaupapa or that kōrero could be from my time when I worked at the uh, World Intellectual Property Organization. So I will explain this in more detail shortly but as many of you will probably know WIPO or the World Intellectual Property Organization is actually undertaking 
steps to their negotiating an international legal instrument to better protect traditional knowledge. And so this is uh, remarkably uh, uh, apt for us right now when it comes to our thinking of the Y262 and legal instruments and what that could mean for us. I thought I would share um, some insights uh, from my time uh, at WIPO uh, and some of the problems that I saw uh, that were occurring in that process and perhaps some of the lessons that we could take from, from that experience so that we don't duplicate them here or we could consider them a little bit more fully before we open the door um, into a process that in my experience, especially at the international level anyway, has been very problematic for Indigenous people. But before I sort of delve into that uh, more technical corridor, I wanted to just, uh, as my way of sort of acknowledging the, the modi of this claim um, and to sort of, I think, introduce my whakapapa to the claim and introduce myself a bit more fully uh, to you all, I wanted to turn to the more, um, yeah, the meaning this claim has to me personally. So. My grandfather's name was um, Arthur Tuki, and my grandfather was from the Hokianga in Northland. He was a fierce advocate and a staunch believer in all things Māori, and he shared and raised my brother and I with the values that accompany that sort of um, belief. He was first cousins with Auntie Thalma or Dawihungi, so my grandfather's father and her mother were siblings and their grandfather was Toki Pangari. So my grandfather participated in the 1975 lay march you know, from up north. Uh, he was a fierce advocate for te reo Māori uh, and a, a very staunch supporter of Auntie Thelma and the very important he that she did. So from a very young age, I remember going to many different hui uh, and being a part of my grandfather's work as he supported Auntie Thelma. Um, the picture that you can see on the screen right now is actually both of them are, are there. So working from the left to the right, you'll see, I think, it's Peter Curtis, then my grandfather, Arthur Tuki, Auntie Thelma, and then Murray Parsons at the end. And there they're looking at Pingo. And this is just one of the pictures of one of the times that my grandfather worked very closely with Auntie Thelma. Um, and it's that was my upbringing was with him and amongst all these uh, very important conversations that were taking place. But my personal connection to the claim doesn't just uh, start and end with my grandfather. It also uh, includes my grandmother. So my grandmother's name was Frida Toki, and this is her on, on the screen. Uh, Frida, or Frida Davies, or Frida Rewiti is her maiden name. Uh, she's Ngāti Wai. And she is cousins to Uncle Witty McMahon, uh, who was one of the claimants also for the Y262. And she is from Aotea, or Great Barrier Island, and that's my papakainga. My grandmother and my grandfather raised my brother and I, together with my parents, but uh, on Aotea. Uh, and so that is our ukaipo. Um, and it is through my grandmother that I remember lots of hui also taking place out here on our home island. Um, People like un Uncle Witty, Uncle Hori, Nanny Fetu, lots of hui taking place at home around Mātauranga Māori uh, and 
our role as kaitiaki uh, in caretaking for not just the knowledge that accompanies our whenua, but the living beings that we share our whenua and our moana with. So as island people out here on Aotea, a lot of our corridor would revolve around marine life, uh, bird life, um, plant life as well. So that's my whakapapa to this claim. Um, when I speak on these issues, I speak as a Ngāti Wai woman, but I speak as a mokupuna of people who are very intimately connected to the, the beginnings of the Y262. So it's the, the modi of this claim is not lost on me. It's one that has been with me since childhood. And uh, as Julian read out very kindly, I'm, I've pursued it academically through my studies, and I've also worked in this space professionally. Um, so now I think it's turning to that professionalism in my experience working in this space that I'm, I'm going to turn to now. Um, that's just a picture of our, our motu kainga that's out there in the distance um, as you sail towards her with our, our kaitiaki manu in the water. But this is uh, turning to the more focused part of my kōrero today um, and some of the, the things I think we can think about moving forward. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, I worked for the World Intellectual Property Organization. I worked there for about two years. Um, the World Intellectual Property Organization is a specialized UN agency uh, and they are responsible for uh, overseeing the administration of international intellectual property. About 25 years ago, WIPO uh, recognized the need for um, some form of instrument to better protect and uh, traditional knowledge that's that's the word that they use um, and so they established a specialized body so basically an organ within uh, WIPO which was charged at negotiating an international legal instrument to ensure the balance and effective protection of essentially traditional knowledge uh, and so the mahi, this is, the, I think this, the first meeting was in the year 2000, so it's been around for a little while now, and the, the work of this, of WIPO essentially in the member states to negotiate the, this international instrument is remarkably important because if we were ever to think about steps to implement the Y262 here in Aotearoa, it would be a very similar or very parallel process. Um, and so I thought I would share, um, some observations I had um, being on the inside of that process. My role at WIPO was I was an Indigenous fellow. And so my task, one of my tasks was to facilitate the workings of the, this particular committee, uh, the member states who were negotiating this international legal instrument. And in my experience, and this has also been uh, written about uh, extensively by others, um, but I can definitely uh, say that it's it's true in my, in my experience anyway. The process is a little problematic and for me there are three key problems uh, with process. The first is to do with Indigenous representation. Uh, for those of you, some of you might, may not have even heard about this process, um, those who have will probably already know, Indigenous participation in this forum is extremely limited and this has flow on a effects that, are, that sort of challenge the validity of the process that's been taken place by WIPO, but also uh, has huge ramifications for, for us here in Aotearoa. Uh, technically speaking, 
uh, Indigenous people are not member states standing to uh, to be at the table, basically, to, to present uh, ideas, to comment on proposals and that sort of thing. What this means is that Indigenous peoples aren't even at the table when it comes to uh, negotiating the terms of this international instrument. Uh, there are creative ways the Secretariat has sort of facilitated Indigenous participation, so they, they do participate, but not in the same capacity as Member States. And to me that fundamentally instantly speaks of a, a procedural issue. If you don't have the stakeholders uh, at the table uh, who can uh, fully negotiate uh, and not only decide but to negotiate terms, uh, that's hugely problematic. The way that the Secretariat sort of uh, addresses that problem is it has given the Indigenous caucus what they call observer status. Uh, so, And sometimes they're allowed to participate and sometimes not. Sometimes they can lobby uh, countries that might be favourable towards their uh, position, a lot of developing countries for example, but sometimes not. Uh, and so as a result of this difficult participation that Indigenous peoples find themselves in, my experience was that it was very, all of these different meetings that WIPO hold uh, to uh, negotiate this, these international instruments are very poorly attended by Indigenous peoples. Um, you'll see two pictures on the screen now and both of those are, are just, uh, we had two at one meeting and two at another in some years. Um, to me, they'll be poor. It's, uh, it's not representative in the slightest of Indigenous peoples, let alone the diversity of Indigenous opinions when it comes to the become a few about the barriers towards Indigenous participation. For example, WIPO is headquartered in Geneva in Switzerland, one of the most expensive cities in the world. Indigenous peoples who quote unquote live in the New World have to travel. Um, there is funding out there, but that in and of itself is a huge barrier. Um, I could go on about the lack of Indigenous participation, but I'm going to leave it there because I think the point's been made that participation by Indigenous peoples is severely limited. They're not at the table, yet alone decision makers and issues that are essentially theirs and theirs alone. Uh, the next problem uh, is amongst the member states, uh, there is a severe lack of agreement around every aspect of this international instrument that they are negotiating. Uh, so some member states query the need for an international instrument. They think the law as it is, is fine. Leaving that to one side, member states are now questioning the kind of international instrument that they want to uh, negotiate. Some member states are pushing for a treaty, which is an internationally legally binding document. Others are pushing for softer, less binding forms of agreement. So things like a declaration, uh, like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Independence, something a little bit, um, you know, less binding. Uh, others are looking for something even softer still, uh, just a set of aspirations articulated in the form of, in some kind of uh, written form. Uh, then once you've just, when the discussion around what kind of instrument is being negotiated, then it comes to the terms, the scope of the rights, the rights holders, who are they? Are they Indigenous peoples? 
what are Indigenous peoples or are they Indigenous peoples and local communities? What are local communities? Should it be Indigenous peoples alone? And then once you move on past the, the actual content of the rights, the, who are the rights holders, the definition of what traditional knowledge is, there's also the obligations and to whom they fall upon. Are these obligations exclusively held by states, so countries, or are they obligations uh, included on or imposed also upon companies, so non-states non or non-state actors? It's at this point where the, uh, the technicalities around the rights, the content of the rights, the, who are the rights holders and so forth, that lawyers and, and the technical conversation around the, the instruments and, and the content of legal instruments that's sort of um i think when we when we as a people reach that level of detail we should look at to the to the wipo experience in that regard as as i'll talk about shortly there's been a, a long history of, of negotiated rights and obligations of almost 20 years now and it, it'll be really uh interesting for us to sort of look at the shift that's taken place at the international level with regards to those rights. The third and final problem or observation that I've made from my time at WIPO, which I want to share with you and I think will be important for us moving forward, is that of a severe delay. Now, I am a big believer in, uh, uh, I'm a big believer in good things take time. I, I personally don't like rushing anything in my life. Um, and I'm a big believer in the whole and the, the concept and, and the meaning of consensus decision making so that if things are meant to take time, then they should be given the time that they need. However, this process, the WIPO uh, negotiation process that I've been speaking about, started in 2001, it is now 2021. That on its own isn't so bad. However, the, the issue is that there has been very little movement in those 20 years. Positions that were held 20 years are very much the positions that are held today with regards to all the issues that I mentioned just before. Uh, and so that, that lack of movement over that time uh, and one I think that um, also challenges the validity of the process that's taking place and then as a side observation to that it's surprising that in my time when I was uh, part of the secretary people have a vague idea member states have a vague idea that it exists that a report was released in New Zealand um, some kind of tribunal released some report that was the result of various submissions that were presented by both government as well as Indigenous people in New Zealand. But people are very unfamiliar or uh, not quite aware of the value, the significant value that the Y26 report has. And perhaps a conversation that we as Māori will have in the future is how we share the value of the Y26 report with others because it is a significantly valuable regardless of where you fall on, on the spectrum, some uh, whether you think it's a good report or not. The, the point is, is it sets out a framework uh, and it captures rights as human rights instead of economic rights. And just those two things alone, the framework it provides to balance interests and the recategorization or the reframing of these rights, human rights, not economic rights, that alone, I think, will unlock some of the delay that I personally saw uh, at, at the UN. 
So I, I know that I, I'm, I'm meant to have half an hour, so I'm going to try and quickly work my way through the, the last part of this presentation so that there's time for questions. Um, bearing those observations in mind, the lack of Indigenous participation, uh, the severe disagreement that exists regarding the content of the rights of the legal instrument, together with the delay uh, and the little movement that's taken place with regards to resolving those uh, disagreements. The lessons that I think we can draw from the international experience here at home um, are these following five points. Um, as we move forward to perhaps implement the Y262 in a legal instrument, we should seriously consider whether there is a need for a legal instrument. And that's that might be an easy question to resolve, but to truly think about what it is uh, that we're trying to achieve when it comes to implementing the Y262 report. I personally think there is a need for a legal instrument and I'm going to talk about why very shortly. Um, but assuming there is a need for a legal instrument, that we need to think about the kind of legal instrument. And again, this, this question is striking at issues about uh, what is the purpose that we are tr trying to achieve here? Uh, what is the objective of an international instrument? Is it simply to uh, implement the Y262 report or is it something beyond that? Do we want the treaty to be, uh, well, te tiriti to be uh, recognised and implemented or is that conversation too big? Do we want the Matatua declaration to be implemented? Do we want another declaration to be implemented or is it just the Y262 report? Um, these are some ideas that we should think about um, when it comes to discussing the kind of instrument that we want to, we might want to implement. And then of course the key decision for us is what is our role? What is the role of Māori throughout this entire process? Are we the decision makers? Or are we partners with the Crown in this conversation? Or are we merely just working with the government as they lead the process, which is what's happening at the international level? And bearing in mind the comments I made about the lack of Indigenous participation at the international level, uh, if we want to be the decision makers or the partners or whatever it is that we want, the role we want to occupy throughout the process here in Aotearoa, how do we assert that position with the Crown? Much like Indigenous peoples at the international level, the legality of our, our position at the table, although stronger than what it, it could be at the international level, is still, uh, well, I believe it's, it's settled, but uh, the Crown could think otherwise. So how do we assert our position that or another two issues that's numbers four and five on the screen that I just want to flag for now and I'm not going to get into it because I think I'm running out of time uh, but at the international level the diversity of the Indigenous experience is very real uh, but it's also not expressed because of the lack of engagement and that has created a little bit of discord at the international level. So bringing that issue home, how do we, one, uh, make sure we capture the diversity of the Māori experience so we all know to be Māori is not the same. There are shared experiences for sure but it, we are not homogenous, we are a varied and diverse people. And then how do we manage those differences and diversities, if they, especially if they manifest in a difference of opinion? And then something to think about in the future as well is once we've resolved these issues here at home, how do we share that, these lessons with others? Because I think not only can we learn from them, but I think we can definitely share some, some lessons with them moving forward.
So I just wanted to quickly finish my corridor, uh, bringing it back to the personal, bringing it back to Aotearoa and bringing it back to a very tangible example to show why I personally think we need an instrument to better protect our mātauranga Māori. Um, so after my time at, in, at the UN at Waipo, uh, I came home and it was very nice. I missed my whānau and I missed my ukaipo and I spent a lot of time um, back home with my whānau. And my brother, who has started a skincare company called Altia, the problems that he has run into are remarkably spooky, I think, for me, uh, given that he and I both grew up. Sorry, there's actually a boat wave, which is why we were rolling a little bit badly. But um, it's a little bit spooky considering that we both grew up as at the reki reki of, of our elders who've, who really pioneered the, the essence or the mode of the Waitu 62 claim. And now the legacy of that claim is still following us, the mokopuna, um, today. So... Aotea is obviously Great Barrier Island, it's our home, but it's also the name of my brother's skincare company. Uh, Aotea is a, uh, it's technically a skincare company, but it's more than that. Tama, what he does is, Tama's my brother, by the way, he uses the traditional knowledge that our grandmother uh, raised us in and with and he's trying to share a vision with other people essentially through his company which is a skincare company what he does is he uh manuka oil um various other things into these products that you can see on the screen and all of those products are um grown on altar they're made on Altea, so the, the extraction process is, is all undertaken on Afnuai here on Altea. Um, and it's all packaged and bottled here, and it's then taken up to Tamaki, and he either sells it in a shop or he sells it online. And what he's trying to do through his company is to, I think, share an insight into the Māori worldview with others uh, to show them the powerful medicinal properties of our the knowledge that our ancestors had, but to reconceptualise uh, buzzwords and branding within sort of Western businesses such as sustainability. Uh, Tama, for example, is trying to use his company to shake uh, up those sort of ideals and push them further. Uh, he's pushing kaitiakitanga instead of sustainability. He's pushing tanga instead of working with communities and so forth. So he's a little bit of a, a social entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur activist, if, if that makes sense. Um, and so Tama's business is branded Altea. That's the brand. And it makes sense. Everything is Altea. It's Altea Mātauranga Māori. It's Altea Taonga in terms of the manuka. It's Altea made and extracted, Altea grown. Everything in, as part of his business is Altea. And yet, Tama, another company, owns the word or the trademark over the word Altea. So here's Tama, raised on Aotea, using products from Aotea, using mātauranga Māori taught to him by our grandmother from Aotea on Aotea. Branding a product to share with others as, as a way for him to sort of uh, educate, I suppose, consumers on, on products and so forth. And he is at risk of infringing somebody else's legal rights to the word Aotea. 
Now, Thomas' business raises a lot of really fascinating questions that he and I like to talk about often. You know, can you be Māori in a business? How do you be a kaitiaki in a business? How do you share traditional knowledge or mātauranga Māori without losing the essence of what that, that the, the, the modi of what that mātauranga is? Is it right to even make a profit out of those enterprises and so forth? And we talk about these issues a lot. Um, but the problem for us and the, the relevance for us, how can another company, how can, that's the first question. The second question is what, if a company can, how can they prevent Māori, the custodians, the kaitiaki of not just the whenua, but everything that is encapsulated within Altia from using that word in branding a product? And the issue for Tama is what does he do? Does he capitulate legally, you know, follow the law? and not infringe somebody's trademark or does he stand staunch and uh products and for him it's very simple he will he will use the word altia until his people that's i thought i'd just share that that example uh, with you all to um not just show that these issues these issues happen everywhere within our communities that this isn't a unique issue at all but to show how personal and how touched we all are by the essence and the motive of the Y262 claim and as well as the urgency for something to happen um, because there is an intergenerational legacy of the claim and that means by default that these issues still exist and until they're resolved, they will keep happening uh, and the name of our mutu and the, and the name of uh, our ukaipo being owned by a foreign, I think they're foreign company, but we're, we're not quite sure about that. Uh, and it, it's not controlled by us as a people on its own as a really as a problem. So uh, that's my quote at all. I, I think I'll, I'll end it there. So there's, if there's time for questions, I'm, I'm happy to take them. Kia ora. Thank you very much uh, for that presentation. You've certainly raised a number of questions yourself. Um, I'm not sure. There may be other questions that others have in the audience. We've got a couple of questions that's actually coming online. I wonder if that relates specifically to this session, though. We might hold over, if that's okay, Kay Marie, until we get to a later session where I think it can be answered potentially more fully. Unless anyone else has any questions, but you've raised a few yourself, which I think are worthy of consideration. How do we assert our position, the diversity of Māori experience, how we share with others, and, of course, the instrument, and in particular, the issue that you raise with your brother Tama's company. So thank you uh, for that presentation. Kiri te uri o toki pāngari, te tohu ngā tā rai waka, nā nei tā rai te waka o ngā toki mata whaurua, ne? Nō reiro, ko koe te uri o toki pāngari, ko koe ono hiki, te tohu ngā tā rai te kupu i te kōrero o imihi atu ana ki akoe. Thank you very much, Kiri, for that presentation. Uh, if anyone's got any other questions they want to raise as a part of the forum online, you can do so. We will try and endeavour to get Kitty to answer some of those if you've got questions specifically for Kitty. Uh, there are other questions that have been raised that we certainly will put to the symposium uh, later on today. I think what we're going to do now um, is move on to our next co-corridor, can't I? Ko te e 
ko te tāhuhu o te kōrero e hāre ake nei tiwi, ko te kai kōrero e hāre ake nei. He uri no Ngāti Awa, he uri anō hoki no Ngāti Purau no te Tairāwhiti. Linda Tuhiwai-Smith is a professor of Indigenous Education and earned a BA, MA ons and PhD degrees here at the University of Auckland. Her 1996 thesis was titled Ngāho o te kākahu mātauranga, The Multiple Layers of Struggle by Māori and Education. She is, of course, the author of Decolonising Methodologies, a critical analysis of the role of Western scholarly research played in the process of colonisation of Indigenous cultures. This work is considered a major contribution to research methods in social justice. So without further ado, I'll now hand over to Dr. Linda Tuhiwai-Smith with her presentation. E te ahorangi, e te mātanga, te nā koe. Te nā koutou katoa. Huri no te whare, huri no te motu, te nā tātou katoa. Thank you to all the speakers and my aroha to, even though I can't see you, Moana and Hema and those ones who've just been on this journey uh, for such a long time. I think my main claim to fame in in this Y262 context is really um, Aroha Mead's sister, and I know it's also played such a great, you know, big thing in, in her life and, and what she did. Uh, but my role this afternoon really is to um, talk about what, what does this mean for research, what it has it mean for research, and what does it mean going forward. But to do that, I think I need to contextualise uh, my own work, because while some of you were um, working on drafting the declaration for the uh, rights of Indigenous peoples, uh, working on the um, Y262 claim, or uh, you know, working on the Convention of Biological Diversity and indeed the Matatu Declaration. Uh, I was a researcher and I was trying to write a PhD uh, through the early part of the 90s. And then, of course, um, when I finished that, moved on to writing the book Decolonising Methodologies. And that book is very much informed by what I lived, what we lived in our whānau at the time, uh, what I thought about and what I saw in terms of making a very strong argument for Indigenous researchers who were starting to come through at that time to think not like how we've been trained as academic researchers to think about our own kaupapa, but to link our work to the work of Indigenous rights activists and to be very clear that um, if you wish to work in the, the space of Indigenous research, at the very least, it should be linked to supporting um, Indigenous rights, to supporting the aspirations and dreams of our peoples, uh, and supporting the validity and legitimacy of our knowledge. Um, now, clearly, you know, I'm, I was writing here from um, Aotearoa, uh, but, you know, I was also travelling around the world at that time and could see 
the way in which many of those struggles resonated uh, with our own. I think what I, um, you know, I guess tried to lay out was an uh, Indigenous research agenda in the 1998 edition of the book, which mapped on the kinds of research that needed to be done to support the self-determining, self-determination and sovereignty aspirations um, of Indigenous peoples. Since since, um, we've been colonised, really, our languaging has changed um, in that our experiences, as a, you know, another speaker's just said, are incredibly diverse. And so while we sit here, uh, you know, who are able to talk about intellectual property in this kind of COVID world, we know that some governments are still trying to kill Indigenous peoples, burn their forests down, burn their houses down, burn their villages down, and basically obliterate them from the planet. Um, that's the diversity of Indigenous experience, is that we're still struggling uh, to be Indigenous. If we go to Canada, North America, um, you know, they're, they're using their research to identify what they always knew existed, the remains of children uh, who are buried in residential schools. So... There is this broad agenda in which I think researchers across all the different domains of knowledge can make significant contributions um, to, I think, the aspirations that were inside Y262, as well as the um, anxieties, the alarms, the worries, the concerns uh, that that claim was about. You know, at the time... I was, you know, when when the claim was being mounted, I really struggled to understand it at first. I had like, yeah, I could kind of see it at a grassroots level, but the complexity of that claim at that time, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who struggled to figure out where it was going to go and how it was going to end up. Uh, but as it moved on, uh, it became really clear the profound impact, the incredible foresight, the, as someone has said, the enormous love for us as a peoples, for our knowledge, um, for our brilliance, our creations, um, in taking this claim forward, the innovation that was involved, the alliances, the support systems, and, of course, the research that had to be done to mount that claim. So incredibly important um, claim and I think important conceptually uh, for the way I think Māori and those of you who are part of that sort of had that foresight um, to lay out these challenges. And, you know, one of the things that that claim has unleashed, which we are now in the kind of enjoying the benefits of, is this potential of mātauranga Māori. And if I broaden that out of Indigenous knowledge. 
And, you know, you can ask, well, what is the role of, you know, researchers? Because in a way, researchers uh, in institutions at least have a lot, great deal of freedom to decide what it is they're seeking to do. And the only constraints on researchers are often um, ethics, resources, imagination, and skills. Though those are the, I think, the main constraints on how researchers choose their topics. So I want to really go really to the guts of the ethics question. Because at some level, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s in particular, a lot of work was done uh, here in New Zealand, but in Australia, Canada, around ethics and around controlling the behaviours of researchers through stronger ethical protocols, ethical principles that would govern researcher behaviour. And, you know, Māori have there's some very beautiful documents now that kind of spell out the way, um, you know, all researchers should conduct themselves. And certainly, you know, when I started my writing, that was one of the entry points is to think about it in terms of ethics. But I feel like um, we've plateaued a bit. We've stopped thinking about ethics because... We think it's just a form you fill out. It's not a set of principles that you really have to engage with. It's not a set of relationships or connections. It's some boxes that you can fill out. You don't have to look in the mirror or be instructed to look in the mirror and ask yourself every day whether you think you're an ethical researcher. You simply fill, it, fill out a form and a piece of paper comes back and tells you, well, you must be uh, because you've got approval to proceed. And, yeah, I'm being a little bit cynical about that, but I think what I'm trying to say is through the, through the 80s, through the 90s, through the early 2000s, we've done a great deal of work in Māori development more generally, but we're, we're also plateauing out on that work and you know, I'm at the end of my career and it's like we're having to plough back to that early work to remind people, to remind our students and to remind researchers this work was important. This work in this space at this time, you know, it's, it's not out of fashion. It's got nothing to do with being old. It's actually foundational to what we should be thinking about now. It has opened up opportunities for us, but it has also opened up responsibilities. And those responsibilities, first and foremost, are about being informed. Secondly, about being prepared, about conducting ourselves um, in ethical and tikanga ways, and then being able to proceed with some level of expertise. I think the other door that was opened by Y262 is this growth. I call it the rise and rise of Mātauranga Māori because increasingly uh, Mātauranga Māori is seen as the um, kind of innovative 
contribution in the research environment. It's backed up very much by the vision Mātauranga policy uh, that MBE have embraced. So all government research contracts uh, have that expectation. And of course, big institutions align themselves very um, purposefully to um, make the most of that opportunity. And I have real concerns about that. And they're not just about Māori control um, of, you know, Māori taonga, uh, but really the impact that Western ideas, Western research, Western methods still have on Indigenous knowledge, on shaping that knowledge, on languaging that knowledge, you know, like ways for talking about that knowledge, on fragmenting that knowledge across so it gets mapped on to Western disciplines. And what I love about our people is they often come, you know, if you're having a talk with them about researchers, they kind of want everything all in one kind of glorious um, mixed lolly bag of important things that need to be done. But what happens in the institutional environment of research is it gets parceled up and fragmented into specialisms. And that has a danger um, for the way our knowledge becomes even more fragmented. It also has a danger for the way people now think about this opportunity for Mātauranga Māori that, um, you know, I've heard, well, actually I've read documents which suggest um, there should be, you know, a national body that looks after um, Mātauranga Māori. And, you know, at the moment, I personally don't think that's a good idea. Um, I think we're in this kind of interesting space when you think about who owns Mātauranga Māori. Every one of you probably pretty much get, you know, 100% right when you say, well, Māori people do. Well, which Māori people do? Um, does a Māori researcher and a research group own it? Or does a hapu and a whānau own it? Um, how, how do they choose to manage it? And what does it mean if institutions are funded to work with hapu or, or iwi groups to, you know, explore their mātauranga, um, but iwi specifically or hapu or hapuri or, you know, whānau are not actually given the resources to do that themselves. So I think we're at an interesting stage where um, we do have to think seriously about the future of Mātauranga. And, you know, I'm, I don't think, well, I'm not someone who thinks about, well, you know, how is it going to be regulated, managed and whatever. I think a vibrant culture of Māori are very good at regulating and managing it. But when you start to get big research institutions in, involved, then they want to manage the data. Um, they want to define 
the, the methods that are attached to it. They want to define and get benefits from the outputs, the outcomes, um, and any products or intellectual property that can be commercialised comes from that. So I think conceptually um, and in terms of what we might call epistemology, it's really uh, important that we don't divorce our knowledge from ourselves. We don't, we don't separate out um, knowledge as this objective idea from these relationships we have to the idea or what's called our sort of ontologies, um, our identities and the way that they're connected. Because if you can divorce uh, Mā Tauranga from Māori people, then you've essentially lost control um, of that. You've, um, you've said Māori people are not essential uh, to that. And so it's a tricky, tricky space in terms of how we think about it. So that's the big challenge. There's a lot in that quarter that you've just given, but things that stick in my mind, don't divorce our knowledge from ourselves. Don't divorce knowledge from the people. Tell the story of why Y262 needed to happen, what happened to our knowledge as a result of colonisation, and that we carry the responsibility of care for our knowledge, a knowledge that we want to live. And I think you're reinforcing some of the points that Sheridan made. Uh, that Sheridan said this was a claim about aroha, uh, love for our people, love for our knowledge, and providing opportunities for all. I'm actually going to open up here, if that's okay, um, for some people who may want to pose some questions uh, to Dr. Linda Tuhiwai-Smith. Kia ora, ko Murak tēnei, te kaifakari te ho Māori ki tuia ngā reo o te hāpuri. Kia ora, it's Murdoch, Māori Media Coordinator here at Free FM, and we hope you are enjoying all the new Māori-focused kaupapa and kōrero happening on Free FM. Of course, we would love to have more, so if you have kōrero or a kaupapa you want to talk about, get in contact with me, Media at freefm.org.nz. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.